Genesis chapter 14, verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Barak, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Shaveh Kariathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to in Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Malachites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amravel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and Anir. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and he also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. This is the word of God. Let's ask the Lord for his understanding. Father in heaven, you have ordained that this text be kept from the day that Moses wrote it all the way to now, to us, so that we would read it and we would see Christ and glorify Christ. So Lord, help us by your Spirit's illumination to understand better why this is here so that we may see Christ and love Christ more. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. For those of you who are about to start a Bible reading plan, which is probably more than who will finish, we're going to study one of those stories that might trip you up in a couple weeks. When you get to it in a week or two, your eyes are going to hit this text, 
and your eyes will read it without your mind actually engaging. And here's why. You're going to see these names and these places, and instantly that switch in your brain that says this isn't important flips on. And your mind goes into autopilot, and you read through it. You genuinely, honestly read through it, but you finish the chapter, and you think, what What did I just read? Something about Melchizedek, something about tithing, which we'll get to next week. And then you fast forward to the next chapter, which seems more important because the Lord in chapter 15 makes a covenant with Abram. And if you are keen to the Bible storyline, you know that covenants seem more critical than wars. The Bible is filled with all these battles, all these skirmishes, and all these kings and names and places. Why should this one be important to pay attention to, right? Or is it just me? (laughs) Well, it's natural for us to read the Bible that way because that's how we read books and the bible's a book if it's important to the plot we read carefully if it's just what seems like filler details we skim it it's natural for us to to read the bible that way but if we step back and remember that this is a book where the christ and his redemption is the plot and the author Out of all the things that he could have included in this book, he only includes those pertinent elements of the story which point us to Christ. If we remember that, then we'll slow down and, and we'll pray. Lord, teach me to see Christ here. Show me Christ. Glorify Christ in your word. And, and, and we do that, that forces us to slow way down and to read for understanding. So let's begin this year by slowing down and reading Genesis 14 for understanding. Let's pay attention to these details because the Lord has included them for his glory. So we're going to move through the plot of this story in three phases. We're going to begin with the setup, and then we'll move into the crisis, and then the resolution. So if you're English majors or you love books today, is your day. First off, the setup. To understand what's happening in Genesis 14, we need to understand the characters. And who are these characters? Well, it begins in verse 1 with the kings of the east. And I'm not going to put anything on the screen today. Just keep your Bibles open, and I'll I'll, I'll reference some verse numbers for you to to glance at. But for the most part, I'm going to be summarizing this complicated story for you. So we begin with these kings of the east. Verse 1 names the kings of four places. Shinar, Elazar, Elam, and Goim. Now, Shinar, we should remember if we've been stud- as, as we've been studying Genesis to be- together because, because Shinar was that place where Babylon was built, right? So with our Genesis eyes, we're thinking back to Nimrod back in chapter 10, and he wasn't that great of a guy, and then the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, and that wasn't a good thing. So, so we're thinking Shinar and some, some bells and whistles are going. But then that place Goim also is there. That's important because Goim in Hebrew means nations. So it's, so it's very likely that this king title is king of many nations. And he has some larger role than we might at first noticed. The names of these eastern kings are really important. They're very much worth our time to translate here. 
because they are important to the plot. Let's begin with the first guy, Amraphel. So we see that and we think that's another Middle Eastern name that we don't understand. But Amraphel means sayer of darkness. Okay, that's weird. And then Arioch, the next king, means lion man. And then Chedorlaomer, this he's kind of the, the boss. His name means servant of Lagomer or Laomer. And Lagomer was the merciless god of the underworld in the Mediterranean pantheon. So now you're kind of, okay, this, this is interesting. Title doesn't have anything to do with the oceans. His name means cast out of heaven. All right, so it's no coincidence that these four kings of the east have evil-sounding names. Moses, our author, is making it clear that this is some sort of supernaturally influenced, powerful alliance of bad guys. And what we can gather from the first four verses is that these, I'm going to call them the Axis powers, had at some point in history exerted dominance over the nations around them and these nations to the West. And they've been, uh, the, the Western nations have been paying these Axis powers an oppressive tribute. Think of this like they've been paying a, a protection tax or a, a mafia pizzo. That's really what the scene is going on. That sets the scene here. The five kings of the West, mentioned in verse 2, had been paying this burdensome tribute to the Eastern powers, particularly Chedorlaomer, for the last 12 years. And it's gotten difficult. The Western kings have gotten fed up, and they stopped paying the tribute in the 13th year. And that's what verse 4 calls the rebellion. So in response... Chedorlaomer and the eastern bad guy kings get their troops together in, in the 14th year and they make their way towards Canaan in the west to teach all of these western kings and all of the rebels to never again defy the eastern kings. The first part of the chapter is about these four massive armies from the east as one force making their way from what is modern-day Iraq towards the west and what is modern-day Israel. And to get there, they go through Syria and Lebanon and Jordan as they show their strength and destroy all the biggest, baddest armies along the way. So that's what's happening. Verse 5 begins to describe this conquest from east to west. The first accomplishment of the eastern powers in their crushing of the rebellion is the defeat of the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim. This is probably somewhere in southern Syria. Now, Rephaim we haven't seen yet. Who are these guys? We, as the readers of Genesis, have not seen that word yet. But the Israelites, hearing Genesis read for the first time, they know who the Rephaim are. We will later learn in, in Deuteronomy, as you keep reading your Bible, that the Rephaim, Rephaim are actually massive warrior kings. And I say massive, think like in stature. They are described as giants. So think of an entire army of Goliaths. The reason the Rephaim are even mentioned here in this conquest from the Eastern Empire is because the Rephaim were the most formidable army known in the Western lands at least as far as the Israelites are estimating things. 
And what our author is telling us is that the Eastern Empire coming down has no problem dealing with these bad guys, the big giant kings. After passing through their first battle with the giants, the Eastern kings have to face the Zuzim, followed by the Emim. And these are two more races, according to Deuteronomy chapter 2, of giant kings, giant warrior kings. So these are big, bad warriors, and the eastern powers are having no trouble with them. The the picture being painted here is these eastern powers are unbeatable. Wherever they go, they win. And they go far. They, They pour down all the way through the nations that are east of the Jordan River. So if you can imagine your... Your, your, your Bible map, east of the Jordan River is, is where they come. So they come down south along the east side of the Jordan River all the way south and then west into the Sinai Peninsula. And there they defeat the Horites in their kingdom. So on the map, it looks like the, the eastern kings have conquered all the way to the edge of the wilderness. And by wilderness, Moses means that land that divides Canaan from Egypt. So from Iraq all the way down, almost into Egypt, the eastern kings have, they have it all. And then having defeated all of the toughest armies in Syria and the lands on the east side of the Jordan, they turn back north. So they're coming back from Sinai, back up north through the middle of uh, the interior of Canaan, what is modern day Israel, and they mop up everyone else. And this north moving conquest runs, runs the eastern kings through the Amalekites and the Amorites and they defeat them as well. No problems. So if you're counting, so far the eastern kings have fought at least, these are just the battles that have been mentioned, but they fought at least six major battles with some of the most formidable known armies, and they've won them all handily. This eastern axis is an unstoppable force. And that's the setup that gets us to verse 8 when the western kings, Bera, Bersha, Shinab, Shimabar, and the nameless king all decide to take their stand. So the, the, the eastern kings are coming up north and that's where they meet the western kings who began the rebellion. And, and they know, the western kings know, that the eastern kings are on a push to punish them specifically Because they are the ringleaders. They started the rebellion. They're the ones who told everyone, stop paying the tribute. Verse 8, if you've still got your Bible open, verse 8 is an echo of verse 3, and this is the the action of the confrontation. And it happens somewhere near the Dead Sea in a place called the Valley of Sedim. As far as we know, it's somewhere along the south side of, of the Dead Sea. Now, before you think, oh, this must be a good guys, Western kings, versus bad guys, Eastern kings scenario. The guys from the West are going to show the Lord, the, these, these dark lords, what's up. That's not what's happening here. The Western kings are also evil. Okay? We've already been told from chapter 13 that Sodom, at least, is a pretty wicked place. So we have that. But we also have the names of the Western kings for us, don't we? And these names are clues to who these guys are. So let's take a a second to study the Western king's names. First up, on the left flank, we have Bera, king of Sodom. His name means son of evil. That's bad. Next to him is Bersha, king of Gomorrah. Bersha means son of wickedness. Also bad. These two leaders of the rebellion are followed by Shinab, 
king of Adma, whose name means hostile. And all, it just it sounds like we're singing a mighty fortress is our God, doesn't it? His name means hostile. And with him is Shimabar, king of Zeboim, whose name means something like son of the name. And if you remember the name, that's reminiscent of the men in chapter 6, who were the men of renown, and then the men in chapter 11 who wanted to make a name for themselves. All right, so all of this together is just bad guys. Bad guys. I say all that because we, we English speakers have to catch up, don't we? I didn't know any of that before I studied this this week. We have to catch up with the Hebrew speakers who would have more clearly understood what's happening here. This is not, as I first assumed, this is not good guys taking a stand against the bad guys. This is more akin to the Nazis invading the Soviets or if the Yankees played the Dodgers. There is no one to root for here. This is one evil alliance of bad guys against another evil alliance of bad guys. The sons, so let's, let's kind of summarize it. The sons of evil and wickedness are taking their stand against the unmerciful servant of the underworld. That, okay, now I see what's, what's happening here. Do you get it now? That's the story. Now, before we move forward, I want to take a step back and look at all of this in our Genesis context. Because chapter 14 is a snapshot of the world in Abram's day, kind of telling us, How has the world gotten along since Abram has come to the forefront? And what do we see? Violence and evil. And that sounds like something we've seen before in Genesis. It's very much like the world of Genesis chapter 6. You remember that world? Genesis 6.11 says, The earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. Genesis 14 is a a live-action It's footage of that same description. Everywhere you turn, violence, wickedness. Here's the difference between Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 14. In Genesis chapter 6, what happens? God sees all of the wickedness and the violence that is corrupting the world, that is filling man's heart, and God judges the world with the flood. And then we get through Genesis 6, 7, and 8, and he starts over with Noah. And we know that's not going to happen again here because at the end of the flood story, what happened? God said, I'm not going to do that again. God promised not to judge the world with a flood again. So now what will be done with all this humid wickedness and violence? Because it still seems to be filling the earth. Well, now the story is focusing on Abram. He is, for, for we who are reading this, the new Noah. Somehow, the Lord's answer to humanity's wickedness is going to come through Abram. This is a a marker for us as we're moving along the redemptive history timeline of the Bible, okay? It's not Noah anymore. It's not judgment. Now it's Abram and something else, something to do with promises. Well, the eastern kings meet the western kings in the Valley of Sedim. Just as with their previous six battles, it's another massacre. The servant of the God of the underworld and his four armies from the east defeat the sons of evil and wickedness in the five western armies. And the eastern victory, Moses teaches us, is decisive. 
In fact, some commentaries suggest that the, the eastern king's victory here uh, it was so decisive, uh, and, and the eastern kings were so brutal, that when verse 10, look down at verse 10, and you see that, that it says they fell into the, the bitumen pits, the tar pits. What some say is what's happening here is that the western rebels jumped into the tar pits they were, as they're running away because hiding in the tar pits or dying in the tar pits was preferable to the brutalities that the eastern armies would unleash on their captors. So some of them end up drowning in the tar pits. Some of them end up making it into the hills. Others, I'm sure, are killed in battle. Others, we see, are captured as slaves. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, The enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. So the, the evil empire of the east has defeated the wicked and rebellious kings of the west, and they have retrieved the tribute that they came for. They took what was owed them in their estimation. The west would not pay up on their own, so the east had to take it by force. Does that make more sense now as we're reading this? And this story might just seem like a random bit of history interjected into the Abraham story if it weren't for what happens in verse 12. Look at verse 12. This is where we've moved from the setup to the crisis. Verse 12 is where the crisis part of our plot begins to take shape. We can see what the dilemma is. The eastern armies also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, We shouldn't forget where he chose to dwell and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were the allies of Abram. So whoever whoever this escapee is kind of reminds you of that that guy who in the the Battle of Marathon ran and told the, the Greek king. Whoever this escapee is, he is the unsung hero of the story. Right, I... You kind of overlook him because he's is in contrast to Abraham, who or Abram, who's the, the hero here. But this guy is also pretty cool. Whether it's one of Lot's servants or, or maybe one of Lot's family members, this man knows Abram needs to know about what happened. This man knows Abram is the solution to this problem. That tells me that he either knows something that we don't know about Abram's ability to battle, or he knows, like we do, That the Lord is on Abram's side. Either way, this is the shift. The story, the focus of the story now shifts to Abram. I call this part of the story the crisis. Because based on the development of the Abram character so far in Genesis. We should be asking, well, what's Abram going to do about this? Because will he remember that the Lord has promised him protection? Remember those seven promises that the Lord gave Abram, and one of them was protection. Will Abram remember that promise of protection and respond in faith, or will he not? That's, that's the crisis moment for Abram. So let's consider what information that Abram is working with here as he makes his decision about what to do with this news. First of all, Abram knows, like we do, because we read chapter 13, Lot has got himself into this mess. When Abram and Lot parted ways in chapter 13, Lot went east. Remember, east is bad. He settled among the cities of the valley. And and, and our narrator told us that that everyone knew that the men of Sodom were wicked. 
great sinners against the Lord, and yet Lot saw that as a place of paradise, and he chose to go there. He knew what he was getting into, and yet he chose the comforts of the world instead of being as close as possible to the promises of God. He chose what he could see with his eyes rather than what could be seen by faith. And now, having cast his lot with the sons of evil and wickedness, the foolish nephew, he's got his comeuppance, hasn't he? What appeared to him to be a paradise of prosperity and wealth and security has turned out to be a worthless defense against the violence of the world. And now Lot has been taken captive by what we're supposed to read as Babylon. And the world is that way, isn't it? The world and the things of the world are not as secure as they seem. We are always, all of us, are one ketaleomer, or one stock market crash, or one fire, one phone call, one diagnosis away from losing everything. Abram knows this, and he's chosen faith in the promises of God, and he is sitting peaceably under the shade of an oak tree, resting in those promises. Lot has chosen to trust in worldly comforts, and he is discovering the enslavement that those comforts bring with them. That's the spiritual side of the story. And so our question, what Abram's asking, should I descend from this holy hill of peace to rescue my brother's son? The second consideration here is that Abram only has 318 trained men. We look at that and we think, oh, that seems like a lot of people for one guy. But compared to four wicked armies who beat up everyone else, that's not a lot of people. We're not told the the details exactly of how Abram acquired this militia, but presumably given the the tribal warfare environment that is assumed, you would need a decent militia like like this to defend yourself against raiders who might try to take your sheep. Like I said, we think this is a lot of people. And, And it is a testimony to what God has done for Abram. God promised to bless Abram, and this is a blessing. 318 people in, who are, whose only job is to protect you, that's, that's pretty good success, isn't it? But compared to the four armies, we are to see this as a small number. Remember the Axis resume. They have defeated everyone, wherever they go including the three armies of warrior giants, the vicious Amorites, the vicious Amalekites, and the five armies of, the, uh, the five armies of wickedness in the valley. Abram has 318 men. If he's going to pursue this army that has defeated every other army, it's going to be at significant risk to his own life, isn't it? And the life of his men. And the Abram that we know so far from Genesis is not exactly a courageous warrior of a man, is he? The last time that Abram's life was at risk, what did he do? He put his wife in the line of fire and he dug down behind her. And that's relevant to the story with this chapter 14 comes after chapter 12 and we're supposed to read them together in in one sitting. And we're supposed to read that and understand that uh, kind of get into Abram's mind here, 
he is thinking of a third factor, a third consideration that we haven't talked about yet. An unseen factor that is operating in Abram's calculus about what decision to, to make here. And this is the most important factor. Abram, because of chapter 12, he must be considering the grace of God toward him. It's not just what Lot has done to get himself into trouble. It's not just how small his army is. It's who is with him. He has the Lord. So since, since that shameful episode in Egypt, in chapter 12, Abram has repented, and he's grown in his faith. He's grown in his confidence in the Lord's promises. The Lord was gracious to Abram. He rescued Abram. Even when Abram had chosen faithlessness and cowardice and deception, the Lord rewarded Abram with mercy. And the grace and the mercy of the Lord are transformative. God changes us when he shows us his grace. When, when the grace of God is revealed to us, when God is merciful, to, merciful toward us, we are changed. And Abram is slowly being transformed by the grace of God in his life. He has seen firsthand the Lord's miraculous provision for him, even when he didn't deserve it. So having been shown that mercy, Abram makes the decision to show Lot mercy. And having seen that the Lord was faithful to his promises, even when Abram acted cowardly, Abram is confident that the Lord will be faithful again to his promise, the promise of protection, even more so if Abram acts faithfully. You tracking? Right? That this, this faith that the Lord has given Abram is now going to be expressed, and Abram is confident that when he expresses that faith that the Lord has given him, the Lord will come to his aid. Brothers and sisters, if we would just always have at the, at the front of our minds the grace of God toward us in Christ. If we could remember that all that we have has been given to us, that the forgiveness we have been shown is undeserved, then showing mercy toward others, as, as Abram is showing mercy towards Lot here, that would come much easier. As Paul says in Colossians, if the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly, then we'll be thankful. And we will find ourselves more easily putting on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one, with one another. When you find yourself, this is especially relevant today, because this is the Lord's Supper Day. When you find yourself condemning a brother in your heart because of the, because of some genuinely foolish decision that they've made. So they're foolish, they've done something foolish, you and your heart are condemning them. Remember this, the Lord himself has rescued your fearful, faithless, lying self from Egypt. Remember that your former sins are just as vile as your brothers. And let the mercy of Christ be seen in you. Abram does that. He responds in faithfulness to the Lord's promise, in faithfulness to the Lord, in faithfulness to Lot. And we find that beginning in verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, 
He led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, Dan is not a person. To us, it's a person's name. This is, not, this is a place. Dan is at the, for, the northernmost border of Canaan. In fact, Israel will one day inhabit the land as far as Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. This is a description of the borders of future Israel. Abram here is driving out the enemy to the edge of the land. The land, which land? The land that's been promised to his descendants. He's securing their inheritance. Verse 15, and he divided his forces against them by night. We'll talk about that next week. He and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. So he wins the battle at the northern edge of the promised land. The eastern kings take flight north. They've been beaten out of the land, north into Syria. Abram and his 318 men give chase and see to it that they are totally defeated. And all of the captives are rescued. Then he brought back all the provisions, all the possessions rather. Verse 16, he brought back all the possessions, brought back his kinsman Lot, with his possessions, and the women, and the people. This is what is being described as a total and complete victory. Not only did he defeat them, he got all the stuff back, and all the people back. Let's summarize then what we're seeing. I want us all to be on the same page here as we summarize Genesis chapter 14, the first part. Okay, so, due to his love of the world and the things of the world, Lot has chosen to put his hope and his home in the land of the wicked. Not surprisingly, powerful kings of the east, led by Chedorlaomer, the servant of the god of the underworld, have taken him captive. And then Abram, the man to whom the Messiah promises of the Lord have been entrusted, shows love and mercy towards his enslaved kinsmen and rescues him while at the same time exacting brutal vengeance on the enemy. So, that's, that's it. And here's, here's in one sentence. By the hand of God, Abram, the chosen one of God, has been given a miraculous victory over the powers of darkness. That's it. That's what happened. By the hand of God, Abram, the chosen one of God, has been given a miraculous, supernatural victory over the powers of darkness. So when we look at this now as Christians from the broader story of redemption, Abram is pointing us to a greater victory that is to come, isn't he? Just as Abram, we're going to follow the trajectory of this ark through Scripture. Just as Abram and Sarai being rescued from Egypt in chapter 12 foreshadowed the exodus from Egypt in Exodus, there will come a time when God's people make a very lot-like choice and they trust in the world instead of the Lord and they are taken captive by the kings of the east, particularly Babylon. That happens in the Bible. This is foreshadowing what will take place later on in the exile. And just as Abram, who is the representative of the promises of the Lord, rescues Lot, God will be faithful to his promises and he will, through his anointed one, rescue his people from exile in Babylon. That will happen physically under Cyrus, but even more importantly, it will happen spiritually when the man of the promise, the Christ, will come and rescue his people from our captivity to sin and death. So with the eyes of faith, 
we are meant to read Abram's victory for Lot as a foreshadowing of Christ's victory for us. We, like Lot, were as good as dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, in love with this world. That's what Lot was doing. He's in love with the world. He was doing what the world does. He's following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, the sons of evil and wickedness, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Lot was in with the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, captured by the enemy, enslaved by the enemy to do his will, God made us alive together with Christ. He united us to the Christ. He made Christ's victory our redemption. He made the promises to Christ good for us. By grace, you've been saved. Amen. So Abram, who points us to the Christ who is to come, rescues his kinsmen from the enemy, brings his loved one home along with a host of captives and the spoils of war. And then it gets interesting, if it weren't cool enough. Beginning in verse 17, we now turn towards the resolution. So we've seen the setup, we've seen the crisis, and now we're coming down crisis mountain towards the resolution. Verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Ketelaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. This is somewhere outside of what we call Jerusalem now. It was Salem then. The king of Sodom here is the same guy we are to remember from verse 10 early on who went running away to the hills instead of defending his people. It's because of the, the, the cowardice of the king of Sodom that Abram's nephew got caught. And so he's the first to come out to Abram, and we'll see next week the gall of the king of Sodom. But this week our focus is this other guy who's here. There's another guy who, along with the king of Sodom, has gone out to meet Abram. Look at verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. Now, we have already seen that names are important here, right? They're really important to this story. That's just as true for Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek stands in bright contrast to everyone else that we've met. Because standing astride from evil and wickedness and the sayer of darkness and the servant of the God of the underworld is this one whose name means king of righteousness. And he is the king of a place called Salem, which means peace. So the king of righteousness, king of peace, who is a priest of God most high, comes out to bring refreshment and blessing to Abram, who has defeated the servants of darkness. Something's going on here that we should pay careful attention to. Let's just observe that Melchizedek is a spot, a breath of fresh air here, isn't he? Let's just, in all the darkness and the wickedness and the violence that has occurred in this chapter, Melchizedek is the one who represents the Lord, and he stands out just head and shoulders above everyone else. Where everyone else has brought violence and death and destruction, 
the priest king of the Lord brings out nourishment and a blessing. Let's, let's look at this nourishment first, this, this bread and wine that the king of righteousness, the king of peace, brings to Abraham and his hungry men. Bread and wine, did you notice that? We, 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 we didn't do this on purpose, but in the Lord's providence, we will be sharing a meal similar to this meal today. Why are bread and wine the substance of this meal that Melchizedek brings out? Well, from a Genesis context, we've been studying Genesis, we should, whenever we see something, we should look back to where that thing was earlier, right? So we have only seen bread and wine once each so far in Genesis. Bread was first spoken of when Adam received his punishment from God. The Lord told Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. It's the last bread we've seen. So bread up to this point is a a reminder of the curse of the ground. Bread is that which comes through striving and pain and sweat. And it is a sign of the death that is to come. Bread is the memento mori of Genesis 3. It is the reminder of coming death. Wine, meanwhile, also has only come up one time. Up to this point in Genesis. It was with Noah. The last time one of these savior characters in Genesis had wine. Noah got drunk on wine. And then disaster unfolds. And it won't be a few more chapters when Lot will also get drunk on wine. And an even worse outcome will develop. Not once but twice. Two nights in a row. Wine in Genesis is a reminder of human sin. So, so, so if bread is thus far a reminder of our death. And wine is so far a sign of our sinfulness, then both of these items together are the, here's a new word for you, augustatory symbols of the fall. Right? These are the things on the table that remind us of the fall. So what then are we to make of the king of righteousness, the king of peace, priest of, the, of God most high, bringing out reminders of the fall? And turning them into a blessing. Well, for one, we do not need to overlook this is refreshment for weary soldiers. We cannot overlook that. This is also a glimmer of hope. It's a little clue for us, Bible readers, who know the end of the story. It's a clue for us that the effects of the fall are not permanent. Just maybe, maybe, death and sin have an expiration date. And bread and wine will be thought of as signs of God's blessing and not our curse. And somehow, somehow, as we're reading this and seeing these things together, somehow this hopefulness is related to this man Abram. And his defeat of these eastern kings. Well, when we read Melchizedek's blessing, it gives us a little more understanding. Look at verse 19. Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Let's pause for a moment here. Who possesses heaven and earth? 
God Most High does. In this episode that we've just read, there are representatives of the pagan gods. All of these idols, the representatives of the idols are all warring with one another for control of the world. That's what this is. It's a battle for the world war. It is the, but it is the representative of Yahweh, of the Lord, the one true God who steps in and he defeats them all. And, and rightly so, we should see Melchizedek's blessing as a praise to God Most High. This is Genesis. And in Genesis, we have been shown that the Lord is the creator of heaven and earth. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. He's the one and only true God over all. And Melchizedek, the priest king, the one who represents the Lord, recognizes that reality. He knows if Abram has defeated these powerful armies then Abram must be someone special. Now, we don't know what Melchizedek knows about the promises to Abram. Moses has not told us, Genesis has not told us anything about that. We don't know if Melchizedek is privy to the knowledge that the Lord has made seven very special promises to Abram. But I'm not sure he needs to know that. He knows well enough that the only way that Abram could have defeated all of those guys, all those bad guys, the only way that Abram could have defeated these worldly powers is if God Most High was on his side. That's what's important here. That's what he sees. Abram must be a man blessed by the God of all creation to have won these battles. He must be a man blessed beyond measure to have been given this victory. So look at the second part of the blessing. Blessed be the God Most High. Who has delivered your enemies into your hand? This is, this is language of what is an undeniably miraculous victory. And it is more significant than when we first read this skimming along in Genesis, isn't it? The one true God through Abram has intervened in human history. He has stepped into creation to give notice to Satan and the enemies of darkness. The promised one will defeat the darkness of the world. Humanity will be freed from sin and death through the offspring of the promise. That is what is being foreshadowed here. Let's praise the Lord, can we? Let's pray and thank him.